0: everybody welcome to ask me anything i am matt love i am here with pastor jd greer but before we ask the question for this week i have a quick announcement for everybody later this month you will not be hearing from me as the host on this podcast for a little while And i know you're all very sad uh, because i know you come to this podcast for for the host but the good news is jd will still be answering hard questions with quick answers so for 13 weeks Pastor JD is going to be answering questions based off of his new book, 12 Truths and a Lie. And if you're subscribed to this podcast, you don't need to do a thing. This new limited run podcast will stream right here on this feed. Um, And we'll be back to your questions in the second week of December. So this is going to be really exciting. We get to hear about JD's new book and it actually lines up perfectly. He was very kind to write his book and do this podcast in such a way that I actually get to take this break on my paternity leave. So I'm about to have a baby. Everybody pray for my wife. Just found out the baby's in the 90th percentile size. So prayer's up. But we're going to take a little break. We'll be back with your questions second week in December. In the meantime, go ahead and pre-order your copy of JD's new book and tell everybody you know about this new limited run podcast because it is going to be a lot of fun. But we still have a couple more episodes of your standard every day, Ask Me Anything. And the question we have today We've gotten this a number of times, most recently from Kelly. And this is a question, JD, that I think will be pretty interesting to answer. So what is the occult? And maybe as a precursor to that, is it real? Is the occult real and what is the occult? What do you think, JD? Well, Kelly,
1: that's a a very important and very sobering question. I mean, let me just say straight up here, yes, the occult is very real. And now the word occult can refer to different things. It could refer to witchcraft, maybe sometimes it it, it means worshiping pagan gods or ancient rituals. Um, Sometimes it just means attempts to communicate with demons and demonic forces. It's difficult to figure out the exact statistics because so many people define and put different things under different labels when it comes to the word occult. But there was a 2018 article in Newsweek that cited studies that estimated that there are about one and a half million practicing witches in the U.S. alone, people that would identify that they are um, engaging in the occult. Uh, Last fall, NBC News actually um, increased that number a little bit, saying just a little less than a half of a percent of Americans identified as either pagan, Wiccan, or New Age. Not pagan as in, I don't have a religion, but pagan as in, I practice some of these old occult type of religions. I know half a percent may not seem like a lot. But that, I mean, just think about it, that represents a significant amount of people in our country. Um, other parts of the world, other cultures are a lot more just sort of on the surface about this. Uh, a lot of, you know, things that they would just give labels to ancient gods and and you would you would classify that as the occult. We have several missionaries in different parts of the world that talk about whether it's witch doctors or kind of voodoo type of stuff. Um, these things are not just like kind of closet things either. They're very powerful, very influential in different parts of the societies. Um, in places like Asia and Africa, um, South America. We should be really clear that even flirting with the occult is is wicked. Yes. Now, I do want to say one thing here that I actually learned recently um, that is not meant at all to lessen the wickedness of the occult. We'll get to that in a minute, but just to help you understand contextually a little bit. For there, there are many people, especially out on the West Coast, that identification with the occult is, um, they would say, synonymous with resisting tyrannical authority. Um, so that 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 they're, when they say, I'm worshiping Satan, many of them don't even believe in the demonic. They're just saying that I am doing this as a way of rejecting um, abusive authority, whether that comes from the government, the education, or whether it comes from a religious figure. Again, that is not to justify it. It's just that I've heard some of these people say that they're uh, they don't even believe in a spirit world, but this is their way of of, of rejecting the system. Um, you know, usually as a missionary, you're trying to find a place of common ground. I'll be honest; it's it's hard to find common ground with somebody in the occult, but that can at least be a place that you know. I, I feel like I can start and say, "Hey, you've probably seen um, uh, different authorities, even religious authority abused. Yeah. Um, did you know that Jesus Himself was resisted by religious authorities and in many ways set up His ministry in opposition to it? And so even there, there's a point where there of, of identification. Um, so I did want to give that one little caveat, but let me just say in categorical terms, flirting with the occult is wicked. Um, the Torah makes that very clear that, that engaging in any kind of witchcraft um, and any kind of occult stuff is something that in the Old Testament made you worthy of, of the death penalty. Um, Obviously, that doesn't carry over to the New Testament and how we have government and religious authority now, but it just shows you kind of how God feels about that. That is not something to be trifled with. There's a lot of almost what you would think of as minor occult type of stuff where people, whether it's the horoscope or trying to read meanings in the stars or um, Ouija boards. I remember that that was a a game um, when I was a kid that a lot of people would engage in. And um, that stuff is going to be a lot more mainstream, a lot more popular, and it may seem harmless to you, but but it's actually opening a door to the occult itself, and that is is something not to be trifled with. Now, one of the most popular book series uh, of our lifetime has been accused of being something that um, increases and peddles the occult, and that's the Harry Potter series. Um, That's an interesting discussion to get into. Um, Myself, I'm actually not persuaded at all that it has anything to do with the occult. I believe it's a fantasy world, and just because it uses magic and even terms like witches, it doesn't mean that they're promoting the occult any more than J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or some of C.S. Lewis's books, Engage. In that, and when you look at kind of what's being taught there, and the overlay and the fantasy nature of it, I think you'd have a hard time making the case that it is promoting the um, cult. It just doesn't line up. Now, I will say that there are some Christians that, in their conscience, they. They can't separate those two, and that's something that I would respect and would obviously preserve that as a, as a right of conscience, even though I'm not persuaded of that myself. But let me use the rest of my time here in this episode to actually talk about the ways that Satan more often than not, actually, we encounter him in our day-to-day life here um, in the United States or, or wherever you're listening to this from. Um, Satan's going to show up first in, in, in false religions. The Bible says that he and the demons cloak themselves as angels of light, which means he's not saying, hey, I'm Satan, worship me. He, he's going to, to be in deceptions about God that cause people uh, to lead them astray. Paul talks about false gods in first century Greek and Roman cultures that he says, you think you're worshiping God, but you're actually worshiping Satan. You are sacrificing to demons because what's, what Satan has done is he's taken truths about God and twisted them and, and conformed them to human desires and, and projections of what we want God to be and in actually worshiping that false distortion of God. Um, what we're actually doing is we're participating in the worship of a demon that's what Paul says in first Corinthians 10 you may never know that you're engaged with a demon but Paul says indeed you are because he is behind um, uh, the deception of false religions I'd say in the, particularly in the United States and other advanced countries you're going to find that Satan is very at work in powers like materialism um, or power or sexual desire you know it's interesting when you go back and look at the ancient gods that Paul says were, were really demons in disguise they may have had names and they may have had statues associated with them, but they were all about things like fertility and pleasure and materialism and power, all the things that we would tend to worship in the United States um, today. There's a very convicting and and even very ominous um, passage in Matthew six where Jesus talking about money saying that, that no man can serve two masters, says that you cannot serve God and mammon. You have to choose between the two. Our modern Bibles, many of them will translate that word as money, but in older translations, like the King James Version that I grew up on, they would, they would actually translate the word mammon. They would say you cannot serve God and mammon. Um, why would English translators have done that? Well, English translators didn't do that just randomly. In fact, I would argue that the best translation is to leave it as mammon and not translate it as money. Here's why. Jesus spoke in Aaron. Arama- we know that, and mammon is the Aramaic word for money. The New Testament was written by its authors in Greek, so when the gospel writers themselves wrote down Jesus's words, they would just translate them from Aramaic to Greek. But for this one word, mammon, they actually left it in Aramaic. So just like we read it and say, "I don't recognize the word mammon," same thing for the Greek readers of the first New Testament. They've been reading along in Greek, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, what's this word mammon? Why did the authors of the gospel leave that one word in Aramaic and not translate it into Greek? Well, think about it. When you're translating something, what kinds of words do you not translate? Usually you don't translate proper names. You you transliterate a name. You don't translate it. Okay. Early church theologians and commentators, if you go back and read their commentary on, on Matthew 6, they, they said that the apostles and the gospel writers wrote down the word mammon as a proper name because they understood that Jesus, when he was talking about about money, was not just talking about a thing like money. He was talking about a personal power, a demonic power that had a, a proper name, something that, that comes into your heart, not just as you know, um, dollar bills and coins, but it comes into your heart with a will. It, it, there's there's a person behind it. What that shows you is is that Satan has a unique power over money, which is why it's the one thing that Jesus said you cannot serve God and it. Notice he never says that about sex. He never says that about anything else. You cannot serve God and money because ultimately money um, is so. Uh, controlled by and wielded by Satan, that it it, it, it has a way of replacing God in, in, in your heart. You may not know that you're opening yourself up to Satan, but when you give yourself to the service of money and you depend on it and you delight in it and you treasure it, that actually becomes a way that, that Satan um, takes hold of your heart without you even knowing him. Let me give you another way that, that that Satan shows up in the lives of us and our children and our friends that we may never recognize it's him. Um, he's the first one, it seems, from Scripture that makes us question our identity, who we are. You see that in the great temptation that's recorded in Matthew 4 when Jesus is out in the wilderness. When Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him, the first thing he does is, is he tries to get Jesus to question what God the Father has just declared about Jesus. Right before the temptation, Jesus had been baptized by John, and when that happened, heaven's opened, the the spirit like a dove descends, and and God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, the temptations in the wilderness start with saying, if you are the son of God, he's trying to make Jesus question what God has just declared over him. He's trying to get him to establish his identity based on, on his popularity or what he can accomplish. What you'll find Satan doing today when he when he approaches people is he tries to get them to base their their self worth on on how they compare to others or even how righteously they've lived or 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 how much they've accomplished or or how much they failed or, or or something like that. He's he's going to try to tear them down and say you're not who God says you are. You're not who God has redeclared you to be in the gospel. Um, you are what you accomplish. You know, I think it's really significant that in the in the wilderness Satan's first temptations are not about just the lust of the flesh there. He's going to get there, but he's going to start with, let me tear you down who you are in the eyes of God and who God has declared you to be. And, and then once he tears down your identity, then all the other fleshly temptations become become very easy. Let me just say one more thing here, because it's been on my mind recently um, from some stuff I've been teaching. Um, one of the things, ways that that you'll find Satan at work in your life is in what we call the desire cultivation business. I have a few stories in my life where a temptation came out of nowhere. It was strong. It was sudden. Um, and I knew that that was the enemy trying to destroy me. But what I've, I've learned even more recently through, through the study of the book of James and, and other places is that Satan, a lot of times, is playing a real long game in your life, trying to cultivate um, lies that you believe, and he's trying to um, get you to to reshape so that when the moment of opportunity comes, you will 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 go into it headlong. Uh, that's what James says. James chapter one, he says that uh, that desire is like the, it's, it's when sin is conceived, and then it grows up, and then ultimately it ends it ends in death. Russ Moore in his book Tempted and Tried shared something that was actually fascinating about how ranchers cultivate beef cows. They found that high stress levels in cows make them release hormones that significantly downgrade the quality of the meat. Which means if you're eating at a nice steakhouse, you're being served the remains of a very relaxed cow who lived a totally stress-free life. But if you're going to order the T-bone from like Waffle House, you're looking at a cow that was a nervous wreck, probably bit his fingernails all day long, whatever. So modern ranchers do all they can to keep cows calm. Unlike what you've seen in movies or... You know, as you thought growing up, workers are not yelling at them. They're not chasing them with dogs. They're not, you know, rounding them up with lassos. They never, ever, ever use cattle prods anymore because they found that if you'll just keep cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led and you can lead them fattened up, happy and satisfied straight to the slaughterhouse. So the cow should be very aware, right? This rancher who is treating me amazing and giving me such a plush life, he doesn't intend my good. He's treating me nicely, but he's cultivating in me. these kind of habits that ultimately is going to lead me straight to the slaughterhouse. Here's how Russell Moore concludes that analogy. He says, sometimes the Bible uses the language of predator and prey to describe the relationship between tempter and tempted. But often the scripture speaks of temptation in the language of rancher and livestock. You are not just being tracked down; you are also being cultivated. So, Kelly, um, yeah, and that's sort of a smattering of thoughts there. But yes, the occult is real. Yes, we should resist it, even mild forms of it, like you know, horoscope and Ouija boards and superstitious stuff. But we've also got to recognize that our enemy, more often than not, is not going to approach us in those forms. He's going to come to us in the form of distortions of biblical truth, um, tempting us to reshape our views of God based on what we think is right rather than what the Bible says. He's going to repeat the same lie he did in the garden in Genesis 3. Did God really say this? And if he did it, can you really trust him? He's going to try to get you to, to change what you think about God away from the revelation of the bible and more to your own projections he's going to be there to make you question your identity he's at work in things like money and power and and the lust of the flesh and he's he's going to be playing the long game of cultivating Um, us for um, the temptations that ultimately lead to spiritual and, and, and even physical death. And I know that can be heavy and even make you wonder, like, well, how in the world can we escape with an enemy who is so wise, who has been studying human nature for thousands of years and is supernaturally trying to lead us to destruction? The Bible gives one answer to that and is something we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus, and that is Scripture itself. Knowing scripture is how you combat the lies of the enemy. It's what not only gives you clarity about what's right, it gives you the power to actually obey. Satan is powerless against the word of Jesus. At the end of the uh, of the book of Revelation, it's not Jesus's you know mighty biceps or even lightning bolts that ultimately defeat Satan. It's his word. Jesus speaks the word and and, and, and Satan is destroyed. Now we can already repeat Jesus's word in our hearts and over our temptations and our sin and our lies and our depression and our confusion. And we can shatter the hold of the enemy by applying the truth of the promise of God's word to the place places where the enemy is is most severely attacking us.
0: All right, well, again, a question I think some of us ask at various times or just is like, a, a th- you hear about the occult. I mean, any 80s movie, it comes up and you're like, all right, what is going on here? Is this real? What's happening? so helpful from JD. Um, Again, just as a reminder here in a few weeks, we will be going to a little bit of a limited run podcast around JD's new book, 12 Truths and a Lie. Um, It'll be right here on this feed. Get ready for that. Buy JD's new book. It's going to be really, really helpful, I, I believe. And we will see you next time on Ask Me Anything.